Proverbs 27, look at page 3. You can see the text there. This text should, uh, at least at the very beginning, remind you of the book of James. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel, and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. Take the garment of him who is surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit. So he who waits on his master will be honored. As in water face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. Though you gird, sorry, though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks, and attend to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed, and the tender grass shows itself, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing, and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. You may be seated. Today's a great day. I got to preach on the most gospel whiskey text that exists, the middle of Romans 3 up through Romans 5. That is a, a distillate form of the gospel of justification by faith alone. And this text on friends and capital is one of my favorite sections of Proverbs. So 
it's, uh, it's a good time. The uh, chapter here, I need to remember, we're in the middle of Collection 5. And Collection 5 has, we've just gone through the idea that this is sort of the middle management section. This is for people who are in leadership, the, the idea of how to deal with prominent position. And so chapter 25, verses 2 to 27, this is a section that we looked through that talks about the fight over the halls of power. The fight over the halls of power. And that fight over the halls of power, there were the wicked in power and the righteous, and so there's that dispute for it. So there's the fight for the sword, who gets to govern. And then in chapter 25, verse 28, through all of chapter 26, we talked about sort of target identifying information to know about the dangerous people that you will come into conflict with in the halls of power. And so there's a way of, of identifying the types of people to be viewing as dangerous and also to be careful to not form alliances when you're relying upon those types of people when they are in power. And so now, at the same time, how do you deal with your friends there? If you're dealing with a position of authority, you have to deal with friends. How do you deal with friends? And also, how do you deal with managing your own estate there? Because when you get into public business, whether it's a public office of the church or a public office of the state, when you're there, it's very easy to neglect your own property. It's easy to neglect the duties of the household. And that can happen even if you're just in a high position in any sort of property building enterprise, right? Whether it's a company or whatever else. So, so there's that danger. So these are the things that get brought up. And we're going to walk through that. And so you'll remember chapter 27, verses 1 to 22. This is about friends and friendship. And chapter 27, verses 23 to 27 is capitalist poetry. So, come to page 3. Page 3. Friends and friendship. Friendship is about something. So I want to talk to you about the meaning of friendship. So friends, what is a friend? A friend is someone who knows what is good... And therefore, they are able to be committed to what is good. And they are committed to your good. So they know what's good, they're committed to it, and they're committed to your good. So we should find that we are each other's friends. We know God, and we know how to grow in the knowledge of God. We have the good. We should be committed to it. We have sworn. We are baptized. We recovenant in the Lord's Supper. And then in the Lord's Supper, we also recommit to each other in the communion of the saints, to fellowship. What is fellowship? Fellowshipping is working together to accomplish a goal. So friendship is about working together toward the goal of dominion and discipleship. In dominion work, we work to gather property and to rule it by the word of God. In discipleship, we seek to engage with immortal souls and plant the word of truth there and to see it grow. And so that's what friendship is about. Working together to grow in dominion and to disciple. 
Now, the breakdown of chapter 27 is as follows. Verses 1 to 10 is friendship discussed from the perspective of a friend. Verses 11 through 22, 21, forgive me, verses 11 through 21 is friendship talked about from the perspective of a parent. Now, verse 22 is a bridge text, and what it does is it gives a warning about the fact that friends are generally found rather than made. It is difficult to change people. It's a lot easier to find people who share in that commitment. Now, think about this. The church is committed to seeing people change. The church is committed to seeing people change. So what we have to do is to seek to find and to desire to see change. But there's a warning there. And this warning, remember, is in the context of who are the people you're going to govern with? Who are the people you're going to govern with? Then you get into 27, verses 23 to 27. And what we have here is the discussion of capital and income. And how to deal with capital. And there's a call here, even when you're in leadership, to care about your capital. Alright, so now, let's walk through. So, first we're looking at verses 1 to 10. The beginning there is sort of the introductory section there. It, It talks about this idea of, there's a key piece of counsel that's given. And it's sort of introducing into thinking about one of the values of friends. Friends give honor. Friends give honor. Verse 27, verse, chapter 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. That sort of foreshadows for us the, the, the capital section at the end. And James takes this and he applies it to the merchant, doesn't he? Don't boast about tomorrow. Don't say, we'll go to such and such a city and trade and make a profit. Where do you think James got that? Right? James got the book of Proverbs. James is really distillate Proverbs. And so you find all sorts of references to things from Proverbs in James. Now, do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. Instead of boasting about tomorrow, which is you boasting about yourself in the future, right? I remember as a kid boasting about myself in the future a lot. So that made me a fool. Right? I was boasting about me to whoever would listen about stuff I hadn't done yet because doing things is hard. But in the future, I'm sure I will. And those will be great. So that future boasting, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. 
Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. You read that and, you know, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I can get somebody else to say whatever I wanted them to say about me, I'd I'd do that. But the issue is, the point is, it's better to wait for somebody to come by and say something good about you than for you to say it yourself. Even if you were a friendless person and didn't have friends that were going to praise you, it'd be better for a passing stranger to be the thing you wait for to come by and praise you. Right? So, so it's better to wait for the passing stranger to come by and praise you than to praise yourself. Now, we don't get this because we're so metropolitan, but let's think about this a little bit more. The stranger, the foreigner. Do you think in Judea, Israel, in around 1000 BC, foreigners were highly prized or lowly thought of? So, if you wanted to be praised by somebody of high honor, right, you'd be like, here is the king who has been ruling here for a long time, and that person is going to praise me. If you were picking somebody who was socially not impressive, you would say, here is a stranger passing through. None of us know this guy, and he's the one that praises me. Okay, that would be the thing. So the point is, the least impressive person to praise you is, and waiting for it, wait for it, waiting for that is better than praising yourself. If that doesn't bring conviction, you are way better than me. Or delusional. The idea that you don't boast, but rather you wait for another. Now, the stranger and not your own lips. That is, that is a way of showing the extremity of how you should be willing to wait. So, having friends gives you opportunity to praise each other to others in a true and unflattering way. You have friends, you know them, and if you care for them, you care about their reputation, you look for opportunities to praise them in true ways, non-flattering ways. Now, in addition to that, if you are an equal with one of your friends, you have similar station in life, you should try to outdo each other in honoring each other. You want to be honoring them more because you're giving. And guess who will bless the giver? God. You can invest in God blessing you by honoring your friends truthfully without flattery. Now, spouses should be the closest of friends. And so spouses, in particular, should seek to praise each other to others in true and non-flattering ways. So, I will take this opportunity to point out, I think you're well aware of my wife's kingly attributes. And I am very grateful for her administrative skill. If I did not have her administrative skill to keep the home running, to make sure things go well, to deal with the organization of tasks... I would be far less fruitful. And so, you all know this is true and not flattering. It is an honest assessment. That is a thing. You should look for similar things in your spouses, and you should look for similar things in your friends. And so, 
the gifting of your friends and spouses are, be, are things that you should be well-versed in so that you are ready to honor them. Now, I'm competitive. I don't know if you're competitive. If you're competitive, how are you doing it outdoing your friends in honoring them? Losers. You should be winners. <laughs> All right, there's the competitive poll. Now, next section. Win. Verses 3 and 4. This is about impossible relationships. Um, I think I forgot to point out. The structure, also I wanted to point out, okay, so forgive me, verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, and verses 5 through 10 sort of form an ABC structure, and when you look at verses 11 and 12, that's sort of an A prime, verses 13 to 16, that's a B prime, and verses 17 to 21, that's a C prime, okay, so those, these relate to each other, they have similar subject matter, and I messed up on the title head for A prime, uh, and the idea there is that a, a parent, by being a friend, helps to give themselves honor by helping you to be honorable. It causes a reflecting of honor onto the parents. Okay, so that's the header I kind of meant to have. Failed to come up with a short version of saying that. So that's what's supposed to be there. It's invisible. Just blow on it. All right, so... Back to B on page 3. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Okay, so think about this. When you carry around a stone or you carry around sand, those are heavy. And how effectively are you going to make progress? How hard are you going to work? How well are you going to get stuff done? Right? Can you get stuff done better with bags of sand around your neck and with stones in your backpack or with them gone. The comparison point is foolish friends, wrathful friends, and envious friends are like that. They drag you. So do not... So a stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? So, remember, jealousy is just the desire for something. It's zeal, so to speak. It's a possessiveness. So jealousy is wrong when you're jealous for something that's not yours. So the kind of friend that's dangerous, that's jealous, is someone who doesn't like it when you win doesn't like it when good things happen to you. When good things happen, they don't rejoice, they weep. Right? There's this, as opposed to rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, there is this unhappiness about your success. A good friend is happy for your blessing. One of the reasons a good friend is happy for your blessing is because when your friends get blessed, it gives easier access to you for blessings. 
when your friends get blessed, it gives easier access to blessings for you. Wealthy friends are more likely to help you with money. Friends who are married are more likely to help you to get married. Friends who have a gift or talent are able to use that for their own good and then from a position of strength for your good. So that's one of the reasons why we should be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. If your friends are not able to rejoice with you over things, how much do you think they're going to seek to honor you? In the courts of power, does honor matter? It does. People are valued by what others say of them. And if your friends won't speak well of you, how effective are you going to be at deal-making in the courts of power? So honor is important, and envy decreases the probability of honoring. Cruelty and anger cause problems. They generate torrents or strife. And a fool's wrath slows down progress. So those are the things to be warned about. So it's difficult to make progress or to work well with people who have those attributes. And so making friendships in the halls of power, trying to get stuff done, those attributes will undermine it. So verses 27, uh, chapter 27, verses 5 to 10, these are principles about friends and friendship. These are sort of positive assertions, and these help you to interpret friends and to be interpreted by friends. Okay, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So hopefully it's obvious to you how those things fit together. Okay, so open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. If you love somebody, do you think you're aware of that person's weaknesses? You know somebody, been around them, you care for them, are you aware of their weaknesses? Generally, yes. If you love them, you want to see their weaknesses shored up. But if you conceal that love, you're not going to tell them their weaknesses. You're going to not talk to them about it, not talk to them about how to be better, not talk to them about how to improve. So open rebuke is a type of open love. Open rebuke is a type of open love. Now, open rebuke hurts. The openness of the rebuke should be similar to the openness of the failing, right? And so, you might go, this stings, this hurts. You know, imagine, you know, gentlemen, imagine we're in a council meeting. I say something stupid and you correct me on the spot. That would sting, but it would be an act of love on your part to deal with it immediately. The same would be true if it were reversed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, when possible, we seek to cover each other's failings, right? We, we seek to rebuke each other in private seek to help to see each other grow in private. And so we're open with our rebuke towards each other rather than concealing the love for each other. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The wounds that are issued out by a friend are like the cuts of a surgeon. 
They are cuts designed to heal. Now, one other thing I want to point out to you. Pastors in the ancient and medieval church were often called cures of souls. Now, in Roman Catholicism, that got perverted into the sacramental treadmill. Ah, you've lost baptismal grace by your sin. Let's come confess to me in private. I will give to you penance to do, and then you will be restored to baptismal grace at the Mass. The appropriate way to deal with the idea of of cure of souls, though, that was not the original way it was dealt with. That was not the ancient church's understanding. The cure of souls idea was people have disordered souls. Your souls are injured. They are harmed by sin and unbelief. And a pastor is supposed to be a friend who cares for you, who seeks to come in to bring a cure, the proper word for the proper injury. Gospel for guilt. Law for impenitence and hardness. Words of exhortation for the weak. Words of warning to the impetuous. Knowing the proper word for the proper injury, the proper disorder of soul. That is the idea of the cure of souls. And so the Puritans taking that, trying to reclaim it, and to name it a little bit differently so as to avoid the old superstitious understanding, like to talk about pastors as doctors of the soul. And who has stolen that now? The psychiatrists and the psychologists. You know what psyche means? It's soul in Greek. The ones who study, who are doctors of the soul, are the psychologists and the psychiatrists. They are intentionally willfully trying to steal the office that Christ has given to pastors. That was the intention. That was the design. The advance of Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology and the psychological establishment is an effort to slay the officers of Christ and remove them from prominence It is not even the common thought now that pastors are the people that people should turn to for counsel. It is thought that what people need to do is they go to a preacher to get a feel-good message and to find networking opportunities after he's done yammering. And then, when we have real problems, we'll go to the guy who has the legal power to prescribe drugs. Pastors are curers of soul. They're doctors of the soul. That is the duty. One of the reasons you need one elder per ten households is so that there's sufficient men to give counsel and aid. Right, so that's the work there. So this idea of cure of souls. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The entire self-esteem movement is just the kisses of enemies. It's feel-good deception that is meant for your destruction.
kisses of enemies are deceitful. You have to watch out when people give you things that feel good, pleasant acts. If that person is an enemy, it is being used for your destruction. Sort of the same as flattery. Right? Flattery is a thing for destruction. Feels good. Gossip. Feels good. Used for destruction. Verse 7. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. So this is a common thing in uh, the Hebrew Old Testament. The word um, tabus is translated as loathe because it's very similar to taboos, and um, which, uh, which means to loathe. Taboos means to loathe. Uh, tabus is to trample down. It's more extensive. It's more extreme. Okay, so it's not just loathing. It's it's externally manifested devaluing, trampling. So you oftentimes will find the word loathe is actually tramples on, which is even more powerful. Loathing sounds pretty intense, right? Trampling on is even more intense. Okay, so it's an intensifier. So a satisfied soul tramples on the honeycomb. You ever had so much of something that you kind of just threw it away, treated it like junk? This is a really great video series on economics. This economics series is called Economics for Everybody. One of the things it shows is this way of talking about what's called subjective value. The more you have of something, the less you value it. The less you have of it, the more you find each additional unit to be valuable. So if you have so much honey that you don't know what to do with it, you'll find lots of creative and silly uses for it. If you have very little honey, you will carefully parse it out on the things you like to eat with honey on it. Right? The mighty careful stepping, not stepping on the honeycomb. On the other end, too much, you'll trample on it. So that idea, that Economics for Everybody series, it has this example where it goes, you know, here's a guy. If apples are really expensive, you might stop buying apples. He could really like apples. stops buying them, though, because they're really expensive. If the price goes down, he goes, great, I get to my apples, I get to eat an apple, I'm satisfied. But at a certain point, even if you lower the price super, super low, how many apples is somebody going to eat in a day? And so it has this video with the guy eating like 10 of them, increasingly his, this horrible grimace. That's what I think of when I read this proverb about loathing honey. This guy just eating apple after apple and increasingly feeling sick from eating too many apples. So if you've seen the video series, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen the video series, preview. It's amazing. You should watch it. So, when we look at this, a satisfied soul tramples on the honeycomb. But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. If you have too much of something, you value it little. You have too little of something, and you'll find that you value it extensively. It sounds really wise, and it is really wise, and then you realize, wait a second, this is talking about if you're around your friends too much. They're going to loathe you. They're going to trample on you. They're going to not properly value you. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Familiarity breeds contempt. These are the modern versions of this proverb. The context is about friendship. Even if you are a sweet person to be around, a good person to be around, if you're around too much, you will start to be devalued in people's eyes. 
And so you have to think about how often to, to give yourself to helping other people. Now here's the thing. It continues on. Verse 8. Here's another motivation to be careful to not overexpose yourself to your friends or be around your friends too much. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. That word place could be home or a station of duty. So think about this. If you're around your friends too much and not doing your duty in the places where you have a station of responsibility, you're going to be devalued by your friends. And you'll also be a person who's out of place. You're going to be abandoning your station. Okay, so those two link together there. Those are sort of the way of properly realizing you need to have the place where you perform your duty and you need to engage in that duty and be careful to not make yourself overly available or overly around or it will devalue you. So if there's a way that this can be dealt with sinfully and that can be you intentionally withhold yourself from people who have a claim on you. If you do that, you're sinning for the sake of trying to play some psychological game. The point is, be aware of where your duties are. Focus on those duties and don't abandon your duties to be able to go spend time with your friends and to be able to do things that are pleasant because it will devalue you and you will be abandoning your post. Verse 9. Ointment and perfume delight the heart and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. It's literally... Here's the hearty counsel. It's counsel of the soul. Counsel of the soul. So it's counsel that comes from the inward man. It's your honest counsel. Honest counsel is hard to come by. If you have a friendship where you think you can trust somebody, you're more willing to give them your soul counsel. You're more willing to tell them honestly what you think and fully what you think. How often do you restrain what you say because you are concerned that the person will not hear it. And so you're taking a risk when you give your soul counsel. And that soul counsel adds sweetness to you, to your friend. And at the same time, even sweet things, when someone has too much of it, become trampled upon. Verse 10. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. So we've been told to be careful to not get too much into our friends' lives, but we're also told to be careful to not abandon them. So notice that this is sort of a balancing proverb. It's helping us to realize, don't forsake them. A friend in need is a friend indeed. It's something I I remember as a kid always going, what does that mean? Like, if they need you, then they're really going to like you? They're really going to be fun? What does this mean? It means this. Don't forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. The idea is, when a friend is in need, that's the appropriate time to go be with them. This is not the time to withhold yourself. The time of need is what friendship is for. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. Notice also, (coughs) friendship crosses generations. Friendship crosses generations. There's a covenantal element to friendship. 
if we are all in the church together, we have a covenantal relationship, a covenantal responsibility to each other and to our children. And so the friendship across time goes between generations and it makes it so that there is an alliance of the righteous. Generational divides are destructive and dangerous. They prevent the spread of wisdom. They slow down the transfer of knowledge that ought not to be forgotten. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. So the idea here is the importance of friendship and the way in which friendship should transfer from fathers to children. And at the same time, the realization that closer relationships, like a brother, right? somebody who shares a parent with you, you go, a brother is somebody who has a greater level of responsibility to me than a friend. Yes, they do. But there is distance and there are limits on resources and power. And somebody who has a closer responsibility and relationship to you, who is farther away, they may have a stronger desire to help you. They may have a stronger responsibility to help you. But their power to help you is diminished by distance. Distance represents not only the difficulty of helping, but also the slowness of communication. Distance slows down communication. It reduces the transfer of information. It reduces the ability to help. And so this reveals to us one of the principles of military strategy, concentration. One of the glorious things about the church is it gathers the elect. And then it also perfects them. Remember, we don't abandon each other. There's, we, if any of us are worth abandoning, all of us are worth abandoning. There's a gathering of the elect and there's a perfecting of the elect. The church, by the ministry of the word, by the sacraments, by discipline, it's perfecting, it's improving, it's maturing those who are in the church. But it gathers. It's a principle of concentration. The church gathers the army of the Lord under the banner of Christ so that it can conquer. That gathering and perfecting, the disciplining and training, the maturing and building up, the ordering under officers and a matter of discipline, that work of the church is shown here in verse 10. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. And because of that, the Lord gathers friends together into local communities, into the church. So the local church is the gathering of the saints into concentrated small units to be able to bless each other and hold each other up. Households are units to be able to bless each other and hold each other up. But you don't always have access to your brother. Now, the next section is parents talking about friends. So we see that. My son, verse 11, My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. There's no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth and many reproaches are undermined by having wise children. 
many reproaches are undermined by having wise children. You're terrible at this and you're the worst and whatever. All right? But look at the fruit. Right? If you have wise children, then the result is that people will say, I did something right. Now, if you don't have wise children, then there's less of an answer for the reproach. My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. Well, if the son's foolish and makes the heart sorrowful, then that answer is not available. That's the danger that the prudent man sees. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. Raising children is generally a delayed gratification endeavor. It involves taking present sacrifices for future gains. Avoiding possible future evils by taking measures now. The book of Proverbs is full of admonishments to discipline, to train, to teach, to do that work. And so there's a sacrifice for the place, for the blessing of the children. And that results in blessing and honor to the parents. And the thing about raising wise children is, when they're mature, you have another friend. When you raise wise children, when they mature, you have another friend. I said friends are hard to make. Verse 13. These are the impossible relationships again. And so you can see that these are the kinds of things that are fitting for the parent to warn against. Verse 13. Take the garment of him who is surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. We talked about this before. There's a similar proverb earlier on. But when somebody says to you, hey, you know, you can trust this guy. I'll vouch for him. You say, great. You're vouching for him? Then I want you to give property as a pledge. If you think he's so lendable, then you can be the one to give me property as a pledge. I don't know him. If you know him, great. So take the garment of him who is surety for a stranger. So somebody else... Is claims to be a friend, and they say, no, 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 I want you to trust this guy. You go, okay, fine. If you trust him, you take the risk. But take the garment of him who's surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he's surety for a seductress. So as a person of unknown character and they're going to pledge for him, that's a weak link. There's a person of known bad character and they're pledging for him, that's a weak link. In other words... One of the dangers of unit cohesion is the person who's not careful about operational security. The person who's not careful about leaking information. The person who's not careful about granting trust too easily. So the way you deal with weak links is you make them bear the risk. The way you deal with weak links is you make them bear the risk. That's the proverbial wisdom. 
The next one are harmful helpers. You ever know anybody who wants to help? They want to help real bad. But they just try to help, and it's worse than if they hadn't. That's what this is about. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. Right? You, you think about this friend. This friend's going, you know what? I really appreciate my friend. I'm going to go show my gratitude by blessing him, by calling out blessing on him. And so he goes over and rings the doorbell, and it's 3.30 a.m. The only person who's awake is Jadiel. None of you are awake besides him. <laughs> he hits the doorbell. It's 3.30. And you answer the door, and you go, did your house burn down? Somebody attacking you? You need help to like recover like your family from kidnappers? I mean, I'll grab my gun, rubbing the sleep out of your eyes. And he said, no, man, I just wanted to let you know, I love you. You're awesome. You're the best and I just kind of just lay my hands on you and pray for you right now. And you go, what are you doing? You slam the door. Right? You can't have a curse. That guy just stole sleep from me. That's the harmful helper. Not to be confused with hamburger helper. Verse 15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day, very rainy day, and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever retains her, sorry, whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. So what's the similarity between restraining the wind, trying to hide the wind, grabbing the wind, and grabbing oil? Well, Solomon uses this in Ecclesiastes to talk about a vain task. So if you have a woman who is contentious, the ability to hide that contentiousness or avoid the dishonor that's caused by that contentiousness or to restrain that fighting, is like trying to grab the wind or grab oil. It is not fruitful. So the idea there is to be aware of contentiousness in women. Now, does that mean it's impossible for a contentious woman to be sanctified and to be changed? No. But until she's changed, until she's sanctified, until she's learned the what and why, the restraining is going to be difficult. Fruitless. So this is a relationship that is a danger relationship. So then we get to verse 17. Principles about friends and friendship. Here's kind of, again, more positive things about friendship. Value of friendship here. Verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. When iron sharpens iron, what's happening there is you're, you're rubbing iron against iron. That is the other side of this. You could look at verses 15 and 16 and just go, ah, oh, so contention, argument is all bad. But hey, your wife's supposed to be your friend, right? And iron sharpens iron. It's by the, the process of the friction. There's a need to contend. Wives, there's a danger of being a floor mat. A good friend is not unnecessarily contentious and a good friend is not someone who just conceals all their love. A good friend rebukes wisely and withholds wisely. A good friend argues for the sake of sharpening. A good friend picks the right things to argue about at the right times. Helping to focus attention where it's needed. 
You ever been around a friend where they started arguing with you about something and it was not worth spending the time on right then? You're like, I got this other thing that I have to deal with. Have you ever been around a friend and that happened and then you realized they were the one that was right when they were drawing your attention to the thing that had to be dealt with right then? Both happen. Friends can mess up and hurt you and be contentious about something that shouldn't be given attention right now. Or they can draw your attention to the thing that has to be paid attention to. Be the wise friend. Draw attention to the right thing. Help to pick the thing that needs to be focused on. Rebuke at the place that matters. We all have things to rebuke in each other that are more than we have time for. Which things need to be rebuked now? As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Debate, discussion, social interaction, good examples, wounds of friends, pushing each other, being running mates to stir each other on. These are the ways that friends sharpen each other. One of the reasons the church is so glorious is it's that concentration of friends. And as there are more of us, there's more ability to sharpen. And here's the interesting thing. You might get sick of me, but there are other people besides me. You might get sick of one person, but you can go to another person, and they'll probably see some of the same faults. And you'll have more patience for them, because they don't yammer at you for like 14 hours on the Lord's Day. So that ability to be able to go from friend to friend so that there's sharpening by different persons and the people in your own household. The church provides that ability so that there's not a getting sick of the one person as a constellation of friends. Now, one of the other things is people often neglect to think about the friendship that it can exist between master and servant, between employer and employee. And verse 18 has a beautiful expression of that. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit, so he who waits on his master will be honored. Right? Protecting, keeping, tending a master is a way to get honor. And that's also an economic relationship. The economic relationship is such that you work together to build an estate and there's the ability to have rewards and honor that are passed along. Verse 19. As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. Great. So if you can just look into people's hearts, you'll know the man. Next proverb. Right? No, well, you can't do that, right? The heart is invisible. How do you see a person's heart? You can't see their heart. So, what you do is you watch the man. And you can never get the fullness of the man by watching what he says and what he does. But you start to see a revelation of the heart. The grave, which is what Sheol be translated as, and destruction, Abaddon, are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. 
you're never able to fully get all the information you need, all the evidence you need to really know another man. But at the same time, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. So you can hear the reputation that a man has from others. That's a way of extending out your own experience. You yourself observe the man. And the observations that many people have serve as a way of seeing the heart of the man. Which is one of the reasons why you need multiple witnesses for a person for qualifications for office. Because you're looking for a counsel of many to see, does this guy have the qualifications of office over a period of time. Now, so what others say about a person gives honor to them, gives value to them. Which, by the way, what do friends do again? Friends honor each other. You give value to each other, to other people, when you honor each other. You give economic value to each other when you honor each other. People are eager to hire people with good reputations, eager to pay more people with good reputations. So you can give value to each other by blessing each other, by honoring each other with statements to build reputation. Now that relates back to verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, real quick. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. A man is valued by what others say of him. You have a lot of power over other people's reputations. Do you consider each other your friends? You have a lot of power over the reputations of your friends. Bless each other with honor. Verse 22, we'll stop there. I'll have to do the capitalist poem later. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. The grinding represents a putting of pressure, a testing, a pain. The grinding is pain. And if you go through this suffering, if a fool goes through suffering, suffering's a callback, right? Suffering's a callback to cause you to repent, to stop, to think. The fool, if the fool is ground out in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grains. In other words, this grinding is a fine process. Do you like your grain uh, finely ground, or do you like your grain kind of mealy? Yeah, everybody agrees with you. They prefer it to be more finely ground. So if it's ground out, if the fool's ground out like grain, this is a fine grinding, a grinding out that takes a while. It's a painful process. Mortar, pestle, grind. This grinding process is a prolonged process of pain that grounds down into dust. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. 
if a friend is a fool, they can suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and not get better. What they need is wisdom. Suffering by itself is insufficient to teach. What they need is wisdom. The word of truth, the gospel message, the law of God given in the time of suffering allows for wisdom to displace foolishness. Suffering is not sufficient. It requires wisdom to displace the foolishness. Belief to displace the unbelief. Foolishness will not depart just because of its negative consequences. There must be light to displace the darkness. So preach to your friends and when they suffer the consequences of foolishness, preach to them. Does it seem insensitive? The wounds of a friend are faithful. It is better to give open rebuke than to conceal love. Comments, questions, objections? Voting members, those with speaking rights? Mr. Courtney? So the question is, uh, is psychology and psychiatry useful for the Christian to partake in? There's a Christian psychology. The Christian psychology is the study of the soul as that the information about the soul is revealed by the word of God. And so I think that is what the pastoral ministry is called to, is the engagement with the study of the soul to be a doctor of the soul. And so um, it is possible to provide a private service of counseling and typically... People that are biblical counselors, they use the title of Nuthetic Counseling. Jay Adams helped to famously sort of revive that. Is competent to counsel, how to help people change. Um, those are some of the, the, the books that he has written. I think Nuthetic Counselors are, are who should be looked to. The problem is, a guy that just puts out a shingle and says, I'm a Nuthetic Counselor. Well, who's testing them? The thing about a pastor is, the church is saying, we're hearing his teaching publicly. We're testing his character. And so I would suggest that elders are the best people to get that from. And we want to get the training and resources to church officers to be able to do that. So I think that modern psychology and psychiatry um, is dominated by unbelief and that they are, in effect, witch doctors. Can I answer your Any other comments or questions? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would cause us to learn wisely about friendship, how to be good friends, how to help others, how to be careful to not pull people in who show the signs of endangering our work, but rather to be able to love people and avoid overexposure when they're in danger. Father, we ask that you would help us to be concerned about our stations, about our homes, about our necessary duties, and to not over-focus on friendship, but rather to have friendship be about working together for dominion and discipleship. Father, we ask that you would bless us with wisdom, cause us to bear the fruits of the Spirit, and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.
All right. So please stand. Uh, let me. Let me first. Uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Wait. So let me bless those of you who. Or no, we're going to sing. I can do this. I'm good at what I do. Please stand. We're going to read 133 and sing it. One thirty-three is a good psalm for friendship. A song of a sense of David. Oh, truly, it is very good and pleasant to behold when the brethren come together, concentration, and dwell in unity. There's a stability there, being together, dwelling, and it's in unity. There's a unity of cause, unity of truth. There's shared wisdom. Oh, it is like the precious oil poured out upon the head. Oil being poured out is anointing. Anointing is about power to exercise office, which does run down from Aaron's beard even to his garments. Aaron is the high priest. That's appointing to office, to the idea of strength to be able to serve in office. And the oil is there in abundance. It's, there's so much of it that it's running down the beard. So there's an abundance of strength to be able to perform as the dew from Hermon descends upon Zion's mountain, for there the Lord His blessing gave even eternal life. Okay, so this giving of anointing is like dew from Hermon that descends upon Zion's mountain. Hermon's in the north of Israel. The idea of water dew coming south is something that is something that would be very abnormal. Having it go that far, having dew go that far. So the idea here is there's a a coming of an anointing from a faraway place onto the church. So the other words, the idea that it's coming from far above, it's coming from heaven, that descends upon the church. So there's anointing that's like dew that descends upon the church. For there the Lord his blessing gave even eternal life. In the church the Lord gives blessing, he gives eternal life. So let's sing. <laughs> 